0: This is one of the final letters of the Apostle Paul. Three letters that he wrote from prison before he was beheaded or lost his life, martyred. First uh, Timothy, Titus, and then the last letter, Second Timothy. And these are words of instruction to his protege, Timothy, who, as we will read this morning, was left in Ephesus uh, to get, lead and guide that beloved church there. 1 Timothy, let me start reading in verse 1 and read through verse 7, though we will be looking this morning at verses 3 through 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This is the living word of the living God. Would you bow with me and let us go to his gracious throne to prepare our hearts to hear this word. Our Father, we have sung of your greatness, of your glory, of our need and dependence. And even, Father... While we walk and live in this world that is broken, that is difficult, in which there is suffering, in which we cause suffering, yet, Father, there is an expectancy of what lies ahead, as we have just sung, soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass our pilgrim days. Hope will change to glad fruition. Faith to sight. And prayer to praise. We live with that expectation that there is a day coming when you will reconcile and you will restore, you will fix, you will make right. All the suffering will be gone. And there will just be Joyful experience of what we are now expecting. Never to be diminished. Oh, Father, might that be our hope. And as we make our way towards that hope, would you shape us? Even this morning in this word, would you mold us into faithful servants of you who are hopeful in our dear Savior, in whose name we pray? Amen. I am not intending to rush past and ignore Thanksgiving and Christmas, but just to give you guys a heads up, in about six or seven weeks, the new year will be here. And you're going to be thinking on the last week of December, perhaps about some new goals for a new year. And maybe you've already started thinking about that. What what should be my ambition for the coming year? Well, let me just kind of give you some hints from another writer that I came across this week. Just some suggestions to consider as you anticipate new goals for a new year. One, read less. It makes you think too much. Gain weight, at least 30 pounds. Stop... Ex- Somebody gave an amen. Stop exercising. It's a waste of time. Because what you really should be doing for is watch more TV. You've really been missing some good stuff. Procrastinate more starting tomorrow. Spend your summer vacation in cyberspace. Get further in debt. Uh, Obviously, or I hope obviously, those are folly. But there is often great confusion about... What we should be doing, what we should be doing as individuals, what we should be doing as families, as a country, as a church. It's almost a century ago that Albert Einstein said, we live in a time of excellence of methods and confusion of goals. Wow. If that was some 80 years ago, what is it like today? as we think about the end of this year as we think about the function of the church and our desire this year to equip the saints which has been our our theme for the year i want to think with you this morning about our primary task for the church and not just our primary task for the church at large but the primary task for our church One of the things that has set Grace Bible Church apart is our commitment to and God's grace in and our ability to and the provision of gifts and gifted people in our body to accomplish teaching and discipleship. Our church body is known for handling the scriptures well, but we must ever remember the intent of handling the scriptures well and the text before us this morning is designed to remind us of the purpose of handling the Scriptures well. It is to keep out of one problem and to cultivate one reality, to meet one primary goal. So let's turn this morning to First Timothy chapter 1. I want to look with you at verses 3 through 5 and rediscover with you the wonder of the truth about the Scriptures, that we teach Scripture so scripture can train our hearts to love. Our goal is to train and equip with the scriptures. You know that. We, we make the scriptures a priority in everything that we do. It's central. It's, it's part of our name. Grace Bible Church. But far more than that. Our goal is to train people with the scriptures. So they love to love Christ and to love one another out of the overflow of that love for Christ. Our church body is known for loving and loving well. And this is a message that we we need to hear again. Even this week, I was thinking I had thought, hey, I do a pretty good job at that. I'm a pretty good husband, pretty good dad. My wife tells me all the time, I'm doing a pretty good job. I love well. And this week, I was reminded that I need this text. I need transformation and I need help. I need help. You need help. Because however far we have progressed in loving, we do not love yet. As we will love in glory, which means there is room to grow. And so we need help from this word. So would you come with me to this passage and let us see how Paul identifies three facets for training hearts to love. As we administer the word of God, how will we administer the word of God in such a way that people will love see the first facet of loving, and that is this. We must prioritize the urgency of ministering the word. Prioritize the urgency of ministering the word. We find this in verse 3. And even as we parachute into verse 3, just let me remind you briefly of the historical context of this letter. Paul and Timothy had a really dynamic, unique relationship. It was... They were partners in ministry. They were partners in ministry in multiple places. Timothy traveled with the Apostle Paul and they were partners in ministry in the city of Ephesus. And the, the, the uniqueness of the relationship is even indicated in verse 2. Paul says he's writing this letter to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, Timothy had a different biological father, but as he thought about... The spiritual reality of who he was, not just how he came to faith, but how he was able to grow in faith. The Apostle Paul had a particularly unique emphasis and, and, and influence in his life that made him far more than just a friend, far more than just a disciple. Or he was, in a very real sense, his father. In fact, he says this again in verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. And we find this scattered throughout the pastoral epistles, as well as even the book of Acts. Now, as he writes this letter to this beloved brother of his, son of his, we also need to remember that Timothy was young. And it may be that he faced questions about his youthfulness, perhaps not just internal questions, doubting himself about his youthfulness. Is this really something that I can do? But perhaps... Questions from outside as well. Chapter four, verse 12, Paul says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. So some evidently were saying, who are you, Timothy, to lead us because of your youthfulness? That was not an insignificant thing because Ephesus was an influential church in an influential region. Paul had spent three years in the city of Ephesus at that particular church. He spent more time in Ephesus than any other one single location. Not just had the apostle Paul been there as the church planter of that church, as it were, but uh, church historians tell us that it's very likely that the apostle John was the pastor emeritus of that church. Now, who wants to walk into that setting? I mean, seriously, who wants John MacArthur to be the retiring pastor and John Piper to be the pastor emeritus? No, thank you. And that's Timothy's role. So here he's in this dynamic church, this influential church, and he is placed there to lead that church. And not only, as we're going to find in verse 3, not only to lead that church, but to correct it and to correct the elders that were there. Now, it is a personal letter. We find that scattered all the way throughout this letter. But there also seems to be a, an understanding that the elders that are serving with Timothy will also read this letter. I won't take time to unpack it, but there are numerous instances throughout this book where it seems that Paul is aware that while the letter is going to Timothy personally, that others will be reading the letter alongside him. Now, what's also interesting about this, you're thinking, well, Paul has a really Dynamic relationship with Timothy and their dear friends, their dear brothers, their father and son, this tremendous relationship that they have. What's interesting is how he begins this letter. As, as you think about Paul's letters, what you will find is that all his letters, most of his letters follow a very typical kind of pattern. He begins with an opening greeting, he begins with a thank, then it's followed by a thanksgiving, and then it's followed by a prayer, and then he jumps into the text of what he wants to say. Three times, he omits the thanksgiving. He omits it in Titus. He omits it in Galatians, which is not surprising, given the tone of that letter. And he omits it in this letter. As Paul begins, he doesn't offer thanks. Now, we do know that he is grateful for Timothy. In the second letter, he will say about Timothy Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as, as I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers night and day. So we we know he loves Timothy. We know he's committed to Timothy. We know he's thankful for Timothy. But there is such an urgency in this letter that he removes that thanksgiving and jumps immediately into the body of the letter. And the urgency that I just alluded to, is given to us starting in verse 3. And what is that urgency? It is an urgency to administer, to teach, to correct with the truth. And I say it's urgent because look at verse 3. That's what Paul says. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain and instruct. Now, you know that word urging. It's a It's a common word in the New Testament. It has a very broad range of meaning. And it's it's translated in multiple different ways throughout the New Testament. It goes everything from friendly encouragement to comfort to exhortation to calling one to battle, preparedness and readiness for battle and fighting. And it's that sense which we have in this particular text it's the same word that serves as one of the names and titles for the for the holy spirit he is our paraclete he is our urger as it will he is our comforter and we find all some of the various nuances of the spirit's work in john chapter 16 where jesus uses this word as a title for the spirit of god verse 7 John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's our word, paraclete, the helper, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And what's the benefit? Verse 8, Jesus says, and he, when he, the paraclete, the helper, when he comes, he will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he expands what all those things mean. So the comforter is one that convicts, that guides, that directs, and that comforts in the midst of that. And it's that task that is given to Timothy as he is left in Macedonia. And again, as I have noted, others may have read this letter, but notice that Paul is singling Timothy out for this task. As I urged you, singular, you, Timothy, Everything that I'm about to expose, this is your responsibility, this is your calling, this is your mandate. Timothy was left in Ephesus for this task, and he dare not ignore it. What was so urgent for Timothy, Timothy, as Paul talked to him about that, notice what he says, verse 3, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain, remain. In Ephesus, Paul wanted Timothy to remain. Now, he alludes to the fact that this happened as he was heading to Macedonia, and we don't know exactly when it happened. It is likely that Paul had been released from prison in Rome and his first imprisonment in Rome under the house arrest, and he had been released from that. It seems that he probably went to Ephesus, and then from Ephesus... He visited Colossae, which is in the same general area, and then he had gone back to Ephesus, and while he was back there, Timothy came from Philippi and met him there. And then while they were talking, Paul says, I need to go to Macedonia, and then he leaves Timothy and he goes to Macedonia. What is what is significant is not necessarily the timing, but what he calls Timothy to do. And notice that he says, I urged you, remain. Now what does he say to Timothy? Stay. Because Timothy's temptation is to not stay. Timothy's temptation is to go. To leave. And it could be because he was... Facing ministry pressures, we've already alluded to that in chapter 4, verse 12, where some were looking at him and saying, who, who are you to lead us? Who are you to pour into us? Who are you to guide us? You're just a young whippersnapper. What makes you think that you ought to lead us? And that was certainly going on. There may be a connection between that and what's going on in verse 23 of chapter 5, when Paul says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So he had an upset stomach. And maybe that came from the opposition that he was facing within the church. Or maybe he was just sickly and said, you know, I just don't have a stomach for this, literally and figuratively. And he wanted to leave. Whatever it was, there was evidently a temptation for him to leave and to quit. And Paul says, stick it out. Remain. But he doesn't just want him to s- to remain, does he? He doesn't just say, just stay. He has a particular calling for Timothy to follow. Remain. So that. That's a purpose statement. That tells us why. That tells us that he doesn't just want Timothy to stay, but he wants Timothy to stay and do something particular. So that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange Doctrines Not an easy task There are people that had infiltrated the church in Ephesus That were teaching truth that was not truth Purporting it to be truth Purporting it to be sound doctrine To be reliable and steady And it wasn't And Paul evidently knows who they are He doesn't name names but he might as well he tells us about what they're teaching in verse four. Don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. That's part of their teaching. Verse nine: Law is made for righteous is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, etc., etc. He talks about these as well in chapter six, verse two: Those who have believers as their masters, but not but. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must be able to serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit of believers are are beloved. Teach and preach these principles. And if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicion and a constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. He knows who those guys are. And he knows the hardness of what he has left Timothy to do. It, it, it seems that it's even worse than that. It's not just that Timothy knows who these guys are. It is very likely that these guys are elders in the church in Ephesus. Remember what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 as he meets the Ephesian church and he's going to Jerusalem to be bound and then go on to Rome. Acts chapter 20, he warns that wolves would arise from among your own selves. And he is speaking at that moment with the elders. And it seems that he is tipping his hand That even from within the elders of the church, wolves would arise to take the church astray. And now Paul says, hey, Timothy, I want you to handle that and take care of that. The problem was not just a problem in the church in general, but it was a problem that came from people of influence. Others were readily following because they probably followed these men for a long season. They were trusted. And now Paul Paul leaves Timothy to root these guys out. The problem with these men was not just their character, but notice the end of verse 3 he says they are teaching strange doctrines. That word strange doctrine is a very unusual word. It only appears in the biblical text in this verse and in chapter 6 verse 3 and he he uses that word to indicate it is it is doctrine that is totally different from the truth it is oppositional to the truth it is 180 degrees removed from the truth it is completely unlike the truth it is it is the antithesis to what Paul emphasizes over and over and over in the pastoral epistles first and second Timothy and Titus about sound doctrine It is the antithesis of that which is sound. This false teaching of the false teachers will leave people spiritually ill. It will leave them unhealthy and it will destroy them. And so despite their prominent position and despite his youthfulness, Timothy was entrusted with correcting them. And notice Paul says instructing them. About what they should not teach and about what they should teach. What's interesting is we think about that word instruction and we kind of think, you know, about a classroom setting. We think about information and that's certainly involved. But the sense that of the word that Paul uses here is it's far more than just informational transfer. It's command. It's authority. It's imperative. He's giving an order like a four-star general in the army. And he cannot equivocate. It's a reminder to us that a significant component of Timothy's ministry, of every ministry, is protecting the truth. We've got a mandate to hold on, to preserve, to keep, to uphold to teach, to defend the truth of God. In chapter 3, key verse in the book, he will say, the church is the pillar and support uh, of the truth of God. That's what we do. We uphold, we defend, we articulate, we stand on, we do not move away from the truth. And why is that so important? It is important because false doctrine leads to false living. And false living leads to shipwrecked and ruined lives. In fact, we have an example right at the very end of this chapter. Starting in verse 18, he says, "...this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience." which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. In fact, he uses two words in verse 19 that we're going to see that's part of our goal in teaching and equipping. Faith and conscience. And they've rejected that along with rejecting the truth. And notice what he says about them, verse 20. Here he does call them out. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so they will be taught not to blaspheme me. They were blasphemous. They'd shipwrecked the faith. They'd walked away. It was gone. And it, all, it was all because of bad doctrine. We uphold the truth because lives are at stake. We uphold the truth because lives are at stake eternally. The priority of true teaching was urgent in Timothy's ministry. And brothers and sisters, nothing has changed today. Nothing has changed. We'll we'll see that even more in verse 4. Which is the reason for this urgency that Paul gives Timothy. It is to beware of the temptation to misuse the word. Beware of the temptation to misuse the word. In addition to instructing the false teachers to be careful with their doctrine, Timothy was also to warn them, verse 4, not to pay attention to myths and genealogies, endless genealogies. There were, there were particular kinds of distortions of the truth that they were using to misuse, misrepresent, misapply the scriptures and lead people away. And he identifies two of those here in verse 4, one is myths. By myths, he means fables, fiction. In verse 7 of chapter 4, he'll call this old women's tales. These are stories that have no connection to historical reality. And even at that time, there were books like The biblical antiquities of Philo that was written in 70 AD that retold much of the story of the Old Testament but put a new spin on it, fictionalized it, made it more fun, made it more entertaining, but it was invalid because it wasn't the truth of what was in the Scriptures. Today, we have similar kinds of things. We have things like the Da Vinci Code and the Gospel of the Mary of Magdalene and annual Christmas and Easter attacks by media to discredit biblical history. Fanciful stories used to confuse the scriptures, brothers and sisters, have always abounded. And Paul says, ignore them. Ignore them. There's another kind of false teaching that's infiltrated the church among these elders. It's not just myths, but it's endless genealogies. He's not talking here about the book of Numbers, by the way. He's talking about not biblical genealogies, but he's using about... He's referencing genealogies that people construct and then imagine and invent stories about the genealogies that they read in the scriptures. And they're endless because... Because there's no end to the kinds of things that we can conjure up as we read through these genealogies. And there's no certainty about them. And there is no conclusion about them. And they, they always just provide an endless stream of constant conjecture. And not to throw anybody under the bus, but even even among... Even among evangelicals, we have a propensity to do that. Twenty years ago or so, there was a book that just was so popular. that was this very thing was based on conjecture. You remember it, the prayer of Jabez. And it's long book, just conjecturing about what's going on in his life. We didn't know that's what this is. They're doing those things. And what's the end of that? Notice verse 4. They give rise to mere speculation. In contrast to the truth of Scripture, they are not true. They are not authoritative. And there is nothing that compels transformation in these suppositions. They they cannot produce Christ-like disciples. Well, they do produce something. They're They're not void. They're not empty. Something does come out of this. And we won't take time to unpack all of it. But what are some of the things that come from these kinds of empty speculations? Well, we've already alluded to one thing, verses 19 and 20. It's blasphemy. And another thing that comes from it, chapter 4, is legalism and asceticism. Another thing comes from it, Second Timothy chapter 2, and the, the last book that, Jesus, that uh, Paul would write, is a rejection of the future resurrection of believers. Another thing that comes from it, according to Titus, is a love of money. We find that even in chapter 6 of this chapter. A love of money and a a pursuit of money and and the pursuit of self-gratification. No, brothers and sisters, these these stories are worthless and can never bring people to a knowledge of the truth. And they cannot transform. And instead, they not only can't transform, but they produce ungodliness. Chapter 2 of second timothy remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of god not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers that's what false teaching does verse 16 avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness verse 18 like men who have gone astray from the truth Saying that the reject, that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some, it leads to people shipwrecking their faith and leading others to do the same. there's, there's an importance to this, and even worse even worse than the falseness of the teaching, the problem with these false teaching teachings is that they miss. The opportunity to obey God and fulfill His God's calling on the life of the teacher. Notice the end of this. They give rise to speculation rather than... So they engage in speculation. But now he's going to tell something that should have been the case. Rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. That word administration is a stewardship. In other words, you've been given a stewardship with this word... You've been given a stewardship to help people in a particular way. And when you engage in your own philosophies and your own ideas and worldly ideas, you don't only lead people astray, but you miss the opportunity that God has given you. And the sense is that once it is lost, it is gone. And you can't undo it. They've wasted the opportunity, God had opened a door of opportunity, given them a gift and a and a calling to fulfill. And it was gone. Waste. And notice as well that this stewardship isn't just about them. The stewardship is that which comes by faith. It's a stewardship within the realm of faith. They were to work for the benefit of the gospel of faith because they received the gospel by faith and instead they turned it away and rejected it and pursued personal fancies. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that our role when teaching is not to say anything we want. When discipling, when counseling, when training our children, when leading a home group, when teaching awana when preaching we are under a mandate of a stewardship to say what god says and nothing else number 3 be faithful to the goal to love from the word be faithful to the goal To love from the Word. We have one goal, brothers. It's not to impress. It's not to give increased knowledge. To pass down information. Our goal is to teach in a way that we are led to love. The goal is love. Notice that Paul says in verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love. That word instruction is the noun form that Paul uses in a verbal form in verse 3. When he says to Timothy in verse 3, I urge you to instruct certain men. That's a verb. Here he uses the noun, but it's the same word. It's authoritative teaching. It's a command from God. It's a reminder to Timothy that when he opens the Scriptures, he's speaking for God and speaking with the authority of God. And Paul says that the goal of that commanding, authoritative teaching is love. I don't know about you, but that seems surprising. You go to any university... And you say, what's your mission statement? It's going to have something to do with imparting knowledge and imparting information. You go to a school district and you ask them, what's your goal? They're going to tell you it's about disseminating information, giving knowledge and instruction. And Paul says, yes, we want to give instruction, but it's not just instruction for the sake of instruction. It's not just about giving you information to puff up your head. It's instruction that will move you towards love. The goal of our instruction is to have our minds transformed and our minds renewed so that we love. What's interesting here, among other things that is interesting, is there are a number of words that are in the Greek language that Paul could have used for love. And he doesn't use the word that refers to physical love, erotic love. And he doesn't even use the word for friendly love, cultivating friendship and fellowship, but he uses a word for love, the typical word that you know of in the New Testament, agape. It's a willful love. It's a sacrificial love. It is a committed love, and it is a serving love. And we could even just go back to the similar parallel book that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, that letter, when we find information about what it means to love. Chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, we've been loved by God and that ought to have influence in our lives so that verse 2, chapter 5 of Ephesians, we walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Our lives ought to be characterized as we interact with others as Ones of love and care and concern. And specifically, he'll say later in that chapter, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word. Verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as to love their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. It's willful, it's intentional, it's purposeful, it's decisionistic. It's a commitment. What's interesting about this word love, as Paul uses it in 1 Timothy, he uses the word ten times in the three letters that he writes at the end of his life. First and Second Timothy and Titus. Ten times, nine out of ten times it's paired with faith. And so when you see the word love... In the pastoral epistles, it's connected to faith. In other words, love, genuine love for one another flows out of our faith in Christ. What is this love? Oh, there's a lot of different ways to define it. This is my definition of love. Love is a commitment of my will and my affections to your needs and your best interests, regardless of the cost to me, as an expression of my love for Christ. I love intentionally. That's will. I love affectionately. And I love to meet needs. And I love in a way that meets best interests. And I love no matter the cost. Why? Because I love Christ. There's a lot of different ways to say that. But it it, it flows out of into. Flows out of a love for Christ. And it love flows into caring for others regardless it's a decision now notice this as well it is good for us to remember that as paul addressed this to the pastor of the ephesian church the one he'd left in charge of the church in ephesus that that he had noted previously of the ephesians love for one another and for Christ chapter 1 verse 15 of his letter to Ephesus he says for this reason i too having heard of the faith in the lord jesus christ which exists among you and your love for all the saints do not cease giving thanks for you and so as he reflected on their lives they had been known for love for one another and so it's good for us to recognize that, to remember that the Ephesian church had been known for loving others, but it's also fitting for us to remember that they left that love. Christ's final word, final letter to this church, Revelation chapter 2, I know of your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, you cannot tolerate evil men, you put to, put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. You're, you're faithful, you're orthodox, you're orthodox. You're doing everything right in ministry. You've persevered. You've endured for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Somewhere between Ephesians and this letter to Timothy and Revelation, they turn from a loving church to an unloving church. I I can't say this because the text doesn't say it, but the inference from what he says to Timothy is that this was already in process. That between Ephesians and First Timothy, something had happened and they were already beginning to lose the love for which they are condemned in Ephesians. And brothers and sisters, that's a warning to us. It's a warning to me. We cannot leave love of Christ and we cannot leave love of others. It is notable here as well that when Paul says the goal of our instruction is love, there's no object. Love who? I mean, I could say to you, I love. And you would say, okay, okay. Well, what's next? Who do you love? I'm, I could fill in anything there, right? I love books. I love the Texas Rangers. I love Blue Bell. I love my kids. I love my wife. Which one? What is it? And Paul leaves it blank. Who do they love? Really, only two options, right? The goal of our instruction is love for Christ. Or love for one another. Which is it? Yes. I think, I think, based on the other things that he writes in the other letters, both to Timothy and Titus, as well as to Ephesians, I think what he's emphasizing is love for one another. Love within the flock of Christ. But you can't separate it out, can you? If we're going to love each other, it's only going to flow out of love for Christ. That's why we read First John this morning. If we don't love each other, that's evidence that we're not loving Christ. To the degree that we don't love one another is the degree to which we don't love Christ. Or let's turn it around more positively. The degree to which we love one another is the degree to which we love Christ. And when we do that well, it evidences that we love Christ well. Even when we are known for love, even when we love well, we're going to love Him perfectly, aren't we? I know that from my own heart. It was put on display this week to my shame. And that's why we've got to keep this in front of us. We've got to keep it in front of us personally. And we've got to keep it in front of us corporately. The goal of ministry is to love. Yes, we teach. Yes, we train. Yes, we disciple. Yes, we equip. But when we are teaching, when we are training, when we are discipling, and when we are equipping, we are doing that so that people Love Christ and one another. And maybe a word of encouragement. I think our tendency is to think that it's easy to love. No, it's really hard. It's really hard. To go back here and constantly be giving up and constantly sacrificing and constantly serving, it's hard. It's not natural. In fact, Paul alludes to that as he addresses the older women in the churches in Crete when he writes to Titus. That he is to train older women to encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. They need to be taught to love their kiddos. Well, Terry, that's just wrong. I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world for a mom to love her kids. I won't, I won't, I won't, uh, reveal any of the deepest, darkest secrets of any of our mom's lives, but And you don't even have to say amen. But my guess is, for most of you who are moms, this has been learned, hasn't it? But you know what? You can learn. You can be taught to love. And that's our hopefulness. It can be learned. What produces this kind of love? Well, Paul points to three things that produce this love. The goal is to love from a pure heart. When Paul refers to the heart, he's talking about the inner man. He's talking about the non-material part of us. He's talking about the totality of our affections, our mind, our thoughts, our desires, our motives. He's talking about the control center of our lives. So that thing that is inside of us that drives and compels everything we do. And to say that the inner man, the heart, is pure means that it is cleansed. And washed by the blood of Christ. It is to say. That however imperfect we are. And we are all desperately imperfect. And totally incapable of pleasing God on our own. It is to say that we can have a purity. That is imputed to us. That makes us right with God. And he looks at us and says. I've washed you you are clean. And now we can act with purity. The kind of love that pleases the Lord is a love that comes from purity. It comes from the washing of our sins and it comes from pure motives that come from washed lives and from righteousness that is in Christ. And when we have that inward purity and washing, our actions produce a pure and genuine love. And the goal is not only love from a pure heart, but also love from a good conscience. You know what the conscience is. It's that aspect of the inner man that serves to affirm our actions as right or to condemn them as wrong. Yes, that's right. No, Terry, that's wrong. Don't do that. And that's God's gift to all people. Everybody, whether they're in Christ or outside of Christ, Romans 2 tells us everyone has this conscience that either confirms or condemns them for their actions. One commentator says that the conscience points to self-awareness. I'm aware of what's going on externally, and I'm aware of my rightness and my wrongness. But the conscience is even more than that. In the biblical culture, it also meant the sense of one's moral actions as it related to being a part of a group. So the good conscience sensed inner moral approval from God and from God's people. The conscience is not only my own self-righteousness, as it were, that I'm not condemned by what I did, but it's an awareness that as I fit in the body of Christ, that what I am doing will not be perceived as condemning and sinful by others around me either. So it's not just a personal conscience, it's a corporate conscience. The church and the community is weighing in and saying, yes, this is right, or no, this is wrong. And they're pointing us to the right way to live. And the goal of love is to live in a way that not only is approved within my own conscience, but is approved within the body of Christ. Yeah, that's the way to love. We might combine the conscience to the heart in this way. A good conscience directs one to act with beneficial and good love towards others. Because his motives have been purified. So I do that thing that is right. My conscience inwardly and outwardly, internally and in the body, affirm that it's right and it is flowing from pure heart, pure desires. And the goal of this love, lastly, is from a sincere faith. The faith that Paul is referring to here at the end of verse 5. Is a belief in Christ. It's to the life that it's a reference to the life that we have because of Christ. And I've already noted the fact that wherever Paul, by and large, 90% of the time, wherever Paul mentions love in the pastoral epistles, he pairs it with faith. There, there, there's this conjoining of these two realities when we have genuine faith, when we really believe, when we really follow. Jesus Christ in faith, it's going to work itself out into love. You can't have faith without having love. Those two are interconnected. And notice he says here, it is a sincere faith. It is an unhypocritical faith. No masks here. There's no playing the part of an actor and hiding behind a mask and pretending to be something I'm not. No, no, no. He says it's, it's sincere there's no hypocrisy. There's no pretension. The faith is really there. It's genuine. It really exists. In contrast, the false teachers had destroyed their consciences, had operated out of selfish motives, were insincere believers. They had no true faith. No matter what they did, it was not genuine love. And Paul says, as you love, make sure it's flowing out of the sincerity and genuineness of A faith in Christ. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the apostle wrote to correct a number of problems within that church. In chapter 12, he reminded them of the importance of using their spiritual gifts to serve each other. Not to misuse their gifts for selfish means and motives. And not to ignore their gifts as if the body didn't need them. In chapter fourteen he reminded them of the importance of, of uh, the proper use of the gifts of prophecy and tongues, what we would call the sign gifts. And in between those two chapters in First Corinthians is sandwiched chapter thirteen, in which he reminds them of the attitude that they are to cultivate as they serve the body of Christ. They're to love each other. Chapter thirteen. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love. The prophets profits me nothing. What is this love, Paul? Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. But rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. In the church in Corinth, in the church in Ephesus, in the church at Grace Bible Church in Granbury, Texas, the goal of what we do as we're equipping the saints is to train one another to love. To love Christ. To love one another out of the overflow of that love for Christ. That's what we do. We train one another to love. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for this word. It's a word I needed to hear this week. And it's a word that we need to hear. In your grace, by and large, we have done this well. But we need to excel still more in equipping the saints with instruction to the goal of loving. Would you make us faithful to that task? Would you give us joy in that task? And might we be known always and evermore as a church that teaches well its people to love. And might that candle never be extinguished. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.